What's up everyone? Welcome back to Off The Chain, the backbone for storytelling across builders, creators, and collectors within Web3. Each episode, we dive into how these technologists use the power of blockchain to build businesses and foster creativity. Today, we've got Julian Genestu. Julian is a serial entrepreneur who is currently the founder and CEO of Unlock Protocol. Unlock is a protocol developers, creators, and platforms can use to create memberships, and its goal is to ease implementation and increase conversion from users to members, creating a much healthier monetization environment for the web. During this chat, we'll dive into Julian's vision of this healthier web, the idea of digital inclusion, building time-based memberships with Unlock Protocol, and its various use cases. Before we get going, I want to give a huge shout out to Serotonin for allowing me to record this podcast at their pop-up at the House of Muse during Masari and the Unfinished Conference. Enjoy. Julian, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Dylan. I'm a big fan of what your team is building and glad to have you here. Glad to have you help not only educate me on more of what Unlock is doing, but also helping to educate our listeners as well. And I'm really personally excited about this chat because it's really going to help tell the story of the timeline of the internet and really specifically going from web two with read and write to web three with read, write and own. And so mm -hmm. if it's cool with you, I'd like to just set the stage a little bit and give a quick little introduction of Unlock and then would love for you to go into your background. Does that work for you? Absolutely. Great. Awesome. So Unlock Protocol, for those who don't know, it's meant to help creators find ways to monetize without relying on a middleman. And it's a protocol. And so it's not this centralized platform that controls everything that happens on it. And so you've got developers, creators, and platforms who can create memberships and ultimately Unlock's goal is to ease this implementation and increase this conversion from users to members, creating a much healthier monetization environment for the web. And so in short, Unlock is an open source, collectively owned community government, peer-to-peer -peer system that creates time-based memberships. And ultimately, Unlock Protocol is hoping to be the primitive for every membership, both online and offline around the globe. Julian, did I do it justice before we go into your background? You did do, you did do justice. There's a lot of things there, and I hope we'll have the time to actually go kind of segment that in smaller pieces and explain all of that. Love it. So why don't we shift over? If you can just give a little background on your professional career and how you got to where you are now. Absolutely. Uh, so first of all, thank you for having me again. Uh, I am a software engineer, and I've been a software engineer for 20 years. Um, my big, big passion has always been the open web, the idea that this piece of infrastructure that we collectively built, uh, again, 30, 40 years ago at this point, uh, allows anyone around the web to start publishing things, uh, thoughts, um, applications, uh, and then allows anyone else, anywhere they are on the web, to consume or use that application. And, and I started realizing this because in practice, that's actually what happened to me. I was a I was a, a late teenager, I'd say, and I created a, a job board for students in France. And it was kind of a game, kind of not really a thing that I you know, intended to be a real thing. 
And then after a couple of months, McDonald's started to put job offers on the website. And for me, that was like the realization, okay, this is really, really powerful. Like I don't have to own a large business. I don't have to have, you know, many employees, many customers. I can just randomly in my little apartment, my parents' apartment at the time, technically speaking, using the family computer, put a little website on the web. Um, and that website ends up being useful for, I mean, millions of students in France, not quite the first day, but like tens and then hundreds and then thousands of students. Uh, but also useful for companies that were hiring these students. And, and really kind of that's when it clicked. That's when I realized like the internet is this permissionless platform for creation that allows people to create services, businesses, content for, for anyone else. That's wonderful. And, you know, I was reading an article that you wrote recently, and I'd love to just read off some of the quotes here and then ask you a few questions based off of it. And so what you had written was real digital inclusion will be achieved by empowering society to make informed decisions for themselves, allowing people to self-select into groups based on informed consent. This is a drastic shift from the current model, and it means that centralized entities will lose control over their massive user bases as people turn from users into members. Instead of relying on curated content provided by groups with ulterior motives, people can seek that information that they find interesting. This doesn't mean that people will automatically find correct or even good information, but it means they'll be in control of how they construct meaning from reality, a stark contrast with the current state of affairs. And so my question to you is, when did you become so passionate about this idea of digital inclusion and curated content? Yeah, so basically over the years. So I started with the job board for students and then a bit later created a company that was doing RSS feeds. Um, and for anyone listening to podcasts, that's one of the core technologies that allows you to subscribe to content from multiple feeds. Um, and, and I realized as it went that the business model of the web, attention, uh, was actually incredibly centralizing, not just because it made a few companies extremely powerful, but also because it created the same experience for all of us, basically. You know, uh, the stream that information that we see is the one that is able to capture most attention from most people. And so that creates kind of this set of uh, information that is just the same for everyone. It's actually not that relevant for most people. It's not that useful. It's not even accurate in most cases, or not most, in many cases. But it is the one that allows them, and we can clarify with them, is to capture most of our attention. It's the one that makes it us, that makes us more likely to keep, click on on ads or, or, or on selected things. And it doesn't have to be the same information, but it's the same package of information. So the same slideshows, the same, you never know what happens when, kind of, you know, headlines, clickbaity things, and then the same movements around kind of reinforcing these, uh, what we call filter bubble, but like the idea that if you done a search for a pair of shoes once, you're gonna see that same pair of shoes over and over again for the next three weeks or three months. Because that's what the algorithm thinks uh, you're looking for and is, is you're more likely to click on. And so really that creates kind of this very uniform expression of content creation and that uniform experience for most people on the web. It's actually even further than this. If you think about um, YouTube, and there's actually a ton of videos that have been published about what is the optimal time for a video. Uh, the one that actually you know yields the most revenue per minute, if you want, uh, because you you know you're just long enough to have an ad, not too long to to lose people in the in between in in the thing, and so that creates kind of this very uniform expression where every YouTube video starts to look the same, like in a specific you know 
uh, vertical, they all feel like, I have seen this a thousand times. Well, you know what? It works. It is the same because that's the most, um, which way we say this, the most economically viable for creators to do. And so if we are going to use the same business model for everything, we're going to end up with the same kind of content, the same package format everywhere. My deep beef is like by actually getting, moving away from attention as the business model and moving to what we call membership, where it's kind of opt-in payments. Like, oh, this is interesting to me. I don't know if it's interesting to you. I don't know if it's interesting to them, but it's interesting to me. So I'm going to pay for this. I'm going to opt-in into that experience and pay maybe a big word, but I'm going to get a membership for that content. Now means that all of a sudden these creators are not serving kind of an abstract, uh, you know, ad viewer. They're serving me as a person. And now it means that maybe for that specific kind of content, it makes more sense to do this kind of format or to write about this kind of things. Uh, and so creating kind of more diversity and in the end more inclusion because we're not all the same and we don't all like the same things. A, a web where it's not kind of attention driven actually will be a lot more uh, tailored to everyone's needs and uh, or at least my my my, accept, my my expectation is like it's going to be tailored to what everybody wants rather than what you know everyone wants individually rather than what is the average you know uh thing that we all collectively want and you know this is a somewhat of a heady question but consumers are so used to the attention economy because it's easy you know what you're going to get how do we get people to move away from that attention economy what is the breaking point for them to realize that this is not healthy or sustainable? So two things. First, it's easy because we're used to this. I don't think it's easy, uh, you know, in a vacuum. It's easy because we've been doing 20 years of this. It's easy because we've gotten, we've gotten used to these things that are actually pretty weird. Um, and if you were basically, you know, in a, in, a, in a capsule somewhere for 20 years and you come today, I think you'd find the web to be pretty hard to use with a lot of things that you don't really understand what they are, what are these banners, why are they here, what is kind of content showing. So I think it's easy because we've built, you know, our muscles around these things. In a way, that's actually interesting because we tend to ignore ads at this point, which means that it's kind of, you know, not as efficient as a model. So first, I don't think it's easy. It's just like we're used to this. Uh, the second part of the question is like, how do we get away from this? I think we're already getting away from this. Like, I think we're already seeing a lot of pushback from individuals uh, around these things. It starts with the ad blockers. If you think about this, like, Inserting an ad blocker is a way to say, I don't care about that crap. I just don't want to see this. Um, it's not like I don't want these people on the other side to be paid. It's like, I, I just, I don't want to be bothered with, you know, these banner ads everywhere, these kind of uh, notification and all of that. So we're really already starting to be annoyed by this. And it's ad blockers, it's regulation. I mean, you know, uh, CCPA, California, GDPR in Europe are not emerging for nothing. They're emerging from the fact that we are collectively fed up with that kind of economy. And now we're even seeing us collectively supporting creators on platforms like Patreon is also a sign that we are collectively thinking about moving away from this purely attention-driven economy. Yes. And so I want to shift towards Unlock and also talk about Patreon. But before I do, I have somewhat of a random question that is related to NFTs that I would love just to get your POV on. So the whole yeah. vision of Unlock really is rewriting the internet, shying away from this attention economy. And when I read about your background, it's so clear that you have a vision for what the blockchain can do. So many people who are in the blockchain space right now, the reality is a lot of us came from PFPs profile pictures. And while they are internet, 
many people are starting to believe that they are becoming overpriced and they are becoming stale. From your POV, do you think PFPs have hit the point of becoming more detrimental than positive to Web3 growth? It's hard to say. Honestly, I do think that they've reached kind of, um, I'd say, a local maximum for sure. Uh, a place where, okay, we've seen what that is. We've built some of the excitement around this. But over the last few months, I feel like the, they have, we haven't seen a lot of things that are new on that front. Like it feels like they've reached a local maximum. Is this the absolute maximum that they can go to? Is this kind of at this point, you know, um, on the way down forever? I don't know. Uh, I do think that as a primitive, NFT is useful. The way to think of NFTs in my mind is really kind of almost the same way as thinking about a domain name or a website. You, you know, there's millions of domain names. They're all different. Some of them are more valuable than others. Some of them actually might appreciate in value. Remember like 20 years ago, pizza.com was sold for like $3 million or whatever that is. All of a sudden people are like, oh, this is crazy. Yeah, pizza.com is valuable if you're like a pizza seller. In practice, if I own, you know, uh, French pizza in New York City.com, it's not that it's not that useful. It's not worth that much. But it's still a domain name and it still has a bunch of unity that can be attached to it. That's maybe where I can host my website where I'm going to sell French pizzas. So it's the way to think of a, 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 an NFT is not as a collectible necessarily. It's, not a, it's definitely not as an image. Uh, it's not necessarily as a collectible. It is as a new primitive for the internet. And I know this sounds vague, but it's like a domain name. I think everybody knows what a domain name is. Um, it is nobody can say, oh, you know, it's this. It's, it's a domain name is a primitive for the internet. It allows people to create websites. You could even go as far as an email address is the same. It's like, what's an email address? Well, that's a way to identify someone. Not just someone, it actually could be a way to identify a group as well. It's a way to have accounts on website. So NFTs are kind of like that. It's the same category of things that are building blocks, Lego blocks that people can build on. We've built some interesting use cases around PFPs. Absolutely. Are they the last business, the business use for NFTs? I don't think so at all. Um, are PFPs uh, kind of over? I don't think so either. I think they're going to be continuing to be useful and interesting in many contexts. Um, now, have they reached uh, you know, a local maximum in terms of the price? I don't know, but it looks like the market thinks so at this point. Wonderful. I appreciate that input. That was very insightful. Let's shift over and talk about the real reason why we're here is Unlock. And so I know I said a few parts about Unlock in my intro, but would you mind reminding the listeners what Unlock is and ultimately what you are trying to solve? Absolutely. So Unlock is a protocol. So that's kind of a first thing that I want to define. Um, if you use the web, use HTTP, right? You know, when you type in the URL, the P stands for protocol. Unlock is a protocol in the same way. This is a specification that allows to do, I mean, that allows people to do memberships that specifies how memberships could, maybe should work in practice. So that's why it's a protocol. It's a protocol for memberships in the same way that HTTP is a protocol for, you know, web pages. Um, and, and when I say membership, it's because exactly what I said earlier, I do think the web is kind of moving away from the attention economy toward the membership economy, but it's doing it in a way that is different across the board. Like your, your Patreon subscription is not the same as your New York Times subscription. It's not the same as your Amazon Prime subscription. It's not the same as my blog subscription. And yet I do think there is a ton of value that can be realized by normalizing these subscriptions so that they all behave the same. So. As a user, you might have a single wallet, and we're not even talking about crypto wallet, like a single UI 
where you can see your Netflix account, your New York Times, your Patreon, my blog, all of these things. And now you have a much better interface that allows you to kind of cancel, renew, maybe see some specific perks that are associated with each of these memberships rather than have you know, a credit card statement where you see all of that. Like, oh, this is much how it costs you. Having a UI for this. So again, normalizing would actually make it easier for people to manage these things. It also makes it easier for, for creators. All of a sudden, you can imagine a scenario where, oh, I don't have to kind of deploy my own contract. There is an interface onto my favorite website, maybe it's YouTube, that allows me as a creator to deploy a membership contract, set the terms, set the price. And I know that my users are going to be familiar with this because they've already done this 10 times, 20 times, 100 times for different creators uh, or different organizations in the world. So Unlock is a protocol for memberships as a way to kind of make it easy to subscribe to anything and then to build subscriptions uh, for creators, brands, and organizations. And so does that question, make sense? It does make sense. And I would like to know, if I am YouTube, why would I be incentivized to allow Unlock Protocol to be built on top of my platform? Yeah, it's a good question. So I wouldn't necessarily say Unlock is built on top of your platform. I'd say it's the other way around that it should be. It's like you should build YouTube on top of Unlock. So on YouTube, there is a ton of free content and that's great. There's already kind of the idea more and more of like supported channels. So as a user, I can pay for a specific channel. I actually don't get any more content, but I get more features around the chat and a bunch of things like this. Well, this thing is actually different. So now if, 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 if the creator decides to publish somewhere else, they cannot really bring their members or any of these things. Um, so with Unlock, they could say, hey, we're gonna use that protocol for memberships so that any creator can easily lock and say, okay, my first videos are free, but the third one is going to be token gated or you know, halfway through the video, it's going to token gated and only to my members. And why YouTube would do this is because they can get the cuts. Like we've built a protocol with, at its core, the referral program. The idea that if YouTube is the one selling memberships, they should be able to take a cut. You, the creator, decides, say, cool, I'm going to use YouTube. And if I'm going to YouTube, YouTube will take you know, 5%, will take 10%. It's the YouTube role. If I don't agree with this, I can go on Twitch, I can go on Vimeo, I can go somewhere else where I'm able to sell subscriptions. And now you completely shift the model where as a creator, I, instead of having the platform as something that kind of captures value from me because they show ads halfway or, or do this, I can align my interest with the platform, which is making more money by selling my subscriptions to their users. But at the same time, if I want to start publishing somewhere else, my fans, my user, are able to follow me on that some other platform and then start to still see my content in that world. Just so I fully understand that, we're saying that we think membership, membership primitive needs a standard of its own so that memberships are not siloed across this ever-expanding collection of these disjointed platforms, none of which yes. recognize each other's members. So to be clear, are you saying if I'm a subscriber of a company, I should be able to prove my subscription to that company across various touch points that I have with them, whether that's their blog, whether that's their e-com site, or whether that's early access to tickets that they may be selling? Is that the correct way to look 100%. at it? That's a very good way to look at this. It's like the idea that the membership is cross-platform. It is not stuck on a specific you know, vertical on a specific application. It exists outside of any specific application so that each of these applications can tap into this and leverage my member status 
specific to their platform. But it's not just the company, right? That actually maybe it starts to be more interesting. It's like every company can actually leverage that information. It's like, okay, maybe Netflix knows if they allow if, if they ask me and if I allow them to do the that I'm a, a, a an Amazon Prime subscriber. And then maybe they can offer me, you know, hey, we'll offer you two months off because you're an Amazon Prime subscriber and we really want you to see how good Netflix is compared to Amazon Prime. Maybe some, you know, musician says, hey, you're a member of that other musician. We're friends. We do featuring work from time to time. We'll give you access for free because we like them. Maybe now as a musician, I have a bundled membership with other musicians or with other you know, organizations that I think are part of my ecosystem and I'd rather split revenue rather than actually have disjointed uh, memberships in that case. So really the benefit of the protocol here is the standardization and the ability to, I mean, write code on top of them, program these memberships in ways that work the same across the board and then match my business needs. Okay, so I hope this isn't duplicated efforts, but I wanna make sure I fully understand this. I see how it totally makes sense for the users. But in your light paper, you recognize that monetizing memberships, it's really what the Wall Street Journal has done. It's what the Times has done, Netflix, OnlyFans, Patreon. The average person probably feels that membership access is seamless. Why doesn't OnlyFans or Patreon's platform and how they sell memberships, why doesn't that already work? It, so it does work, but only there. So it means that if I'm a user and I want to access, you know, one of New York Times content on Flipboard, I cannot. Flipboard, the reading application, doesn't even know that I'm a New York Times subscriber. Well, if they allow me to connect my wallet, they okay, we know you're a New York Times subscriber, we'll show you the full feed. Right now, they just show me a, a, a truncated feed and I have to click through to get to, to, to get the New York Times website. So it does work, but it works in a siloed way. What I'm proposing here is like, let's make it work in a cross-platform way that would actually make things much better. Let's actually go back to the web. One thing that people tend to underestimate a lot, uh, we're all trying to have apps on the phone and the web on the phone or on desktop. The biggest difference between these two things is like the, you have to install an app for every single app. You have to install something custom. The web actually doesn't have this. They all use the same protocol, HTTP and HTML and JavaScript to show you content in a single application, the web browser. And so you have something that is a lot more cross-platform rather than, okay, I'm going to have to install yet another app because I want to access you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, and so what I'm trying to say is like, okay, we can build a web version of membership where it just works across the board rather than you as a user having to create accounts on every single platform, put your credit card number on every single platform and then deal with that over and over again. Well, if you have your crypto wallet, specifically in that example, your blockchain entity, you can prove that you have the NFT anywhere you are online without having to kind of recreate accounts and you know redo all of the password mess and, and all of that. Thank you for breaking that down. I want to move on to a major component of the protocol is that Unlock offers membership-based NFTs. And so when a lock manager deploys a membership contract, the lock manager then chooses a duration for all of these memberships. Let's get our listeners up to speed with an example. What's a recent use case of someone using Unlock with these time-based membership NFTs? Yeah, so the, uh, I recently stumbled upon a, a blog where they had a membership that was valid for 30 days. So pretty standard in the extent like a month. Um, and so they choose um, three years of duration. They picked a currency for the price. I think it was USDC on the um, uh, Optimism Network. So they're charging what is a stable coin. 
on a blockchain called Optimism, which uh, some of you might be uh, uh, familiar with. It's a, it's a layer two. Um, and so there, the creator decided to do this um, this way. So 30 days, 10 USDC on Optimism. From there, basically, when users go purchase, they purchase an NFT that's going to be valid for 30 days. And they might, and in most cases they do, approve the equivalent of a year. So instead of, I mean, they're spending 10 USDC, but they approved 120 so that their membership NFT is going to be automatically renewed every month for a year. I also have another question that I'm trying to wrap my head around with NFTs around subscriptions that are not limited. So let's say that I have a blog right now and I want to sell subscriptions for people to read. The idea is that I can sell an NFT which gates people into coming and reading my content. If I have unlimited amount of subscriptions available, why as someone who is selling memberships want to sell them as an NFT, which in theory can be resold on the secondary market, and I would only be able to get a royalty versus making 100% of the primary sale. The expiration date is the thing that does the trick, right? Like if you're going to buy somebody else's membership, it's likely that that somebody else is going to be selling you a used one, something that is already, you know, partly consumed. So maybe, you know, the 10 bucks a month example that I was saying is like, ah, I don't want to pay 10 bucks for a month. I'd, I'd like to try first. So maybe I'm going to find someone who has sold or is selling a membership that is, you know, 10 days left. And maybe it's only five bucks or maybe less than this. So I don't take as much of a risk. Now it's really good for the user because they're, you know, kind of able to kind of do a trial. And by the way, you could, as a creator, could have multiple tiers and you could have like a, okay, a one day, a dollar thing versus a 30 days, $10 thing. But let's assume I'm buying from somebody else's used membership. It's possible. In that scenario, the creator is not making more money, but they're also not getting more subscriber. If the person is selling theirs, it's probably because they were churning and they're not interested in keeping it anyway. So it's like they, you replace with somebody else. Um, and so that creates kind of a, a model here where I can say, oh, I don't really care that much about this thing anymore. I'd like to sell it to somebody else uh, rather than actually cancel it, which might be costing me more because maybe I'm not getting any new front. Right that makes so much sense. And if I was in that situation, and I'm not saying this just to pump up unlock, but I could never imagine a world where I would just sell my service as an NFT if it's unlimited without having time based on it. Like another, let's give another oh. great example. Ready? Textbooks. Okay. If I'm a textbook company and I'm selling my textbook as an NFT and I'm charging $500, I don't want people to be able to resell those textbooks so easily because I would only be able to get the royalty. And for the record, textbooks are incredibly overpriced. We all know that, so maybe not the best example. Sometimes they can be evil, but let's just go with it for this conversation. So I sell my textbook for $500. Yep. The next student that needs it, theoretically, I wanna sell it to them for $500. If it's an NFT without a time-based expiration date on it, someone else can just sell it for, let's say, $100, which for the record, may be fair market value, but I'm only getting yep. five to 10% of that. And so, and so financially, yep. it doesn't make sense. And I think that's a problem that we're seeing with a lot of these projects that are based around NFTs or look at SaaS companies. A SaaS company can't just give away unlimited access 
forever, forever. to their platform via exactly. an NFT because there's no recurring model on it. And if somebody resells it, I'm only capturing a small percent of the second. Exactly. So two things. First, I do. Th I think forever is terrible business. Like you'd actually never want to have any kind of business that sells something forever because they would need to find you know ways to make money after a couple of weeks, after a couple of months. Especially if there's an ongoing cost. Like a publisher who writes content every day. If you sell a subscription forever, well, you know what? Somebody gets a subscription now. Now I have to write content for the rest of my life without getting paid ever again by that person who's going to consume everything. So that's pretty bad business. I do think that having a time limit is a good idea on pretty much everything. And so that's why creating NFTs that expire, I think, makes a ton of sense. The second point that you make about the royalties is a very good one. But I think beyond the fact that it would be bad from a, I mean, it would not create a lot of revenue. I think it's also bad in terms of meaning. It means that to make money, as a creator who is making money on royalties, my fans have to churn. So basically, I can only make money if whoever was my fan decides to not be a fan anymore. And that's kind of the opposite of what you want as a creator, as, a, as an artist. You don't want churns. You want people to stick around. But if, you, if they stick around, you're not making money, then you kind of want them to, 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 to churn. And so that creates kind of, the royalties model is actually, in my mind, a pretty bad one because this creates kind of this tension between on one side, I need to keep my fans as fans because that's my community. And then, well, if I need to make money, I need for a few of them to actually start selling uh, their NFTs. Otherwise, I'm actually not making money. So for me, royalty is actually a pretty bad business in the vast majority of cases. I'm sure there is a few exceptions. Like, you know, of course, good for of course. And royalties can be great as an icing on the cake. Like, for example, if you're exactly Basquiat, right. Basquiat's family should be getting paid for his art that's yes. being resold right now. He, Basquiat actually, wouldn't a, want his economic model. Yeah, you go. But the good point about him is like, how many times a year a Basquiat piece is being sold? Like, you know, two or three times, like not much more than this, maybe less than this. And the reason why, I mean, and that's a lot. And so the reason why this is a valuable business in the context of two or three times being exchanged is because he's so valued, but unfortunately, or, you know, maybe, I don't know, not all artists are valued the same price. And so if there's like two transactions a year that are each worth a thousand bucks or maybe five thousand bucks as a painter i'm not going to make a money i'm not going to make a living so it only yeah. works at scale when for extremely valuable artists especially in and the reason why basket is so expensive is because it's it's you know because it's kind of fairly scarce and and if it was exchanged every day then the price would go down a lot which means that the royalties might not work anymore uh, in that scenario so it kind of creates this i mean in my mind the royalty system is is an interesting idea i just don't think it works that well for most cases. So Unlock has a bunch of different use cases. I know you can use them for memberships. You can use them for ticketing. Is there an area over the next six months that your team is very interested in doubling down on to get more use case examples? Yeah, the media membership is one that we're looking after a lot, the media subscription. Like I mentioned, Netflix, New York Times, Patreon. These are the things that we, we focus on a lot right now. We, we do a lot of ticketing things and we've done a lot of very good um, I mean, examples of how this works in the ticketing world from ECC conference to DAPCON last week in Berlin uh, to if Kenya or if Safari, I think in Kenya next week um, and, and many more. Uh, Unlock as a ticketing thing works really well. Now the next step for us is to prove the recurring uh, on-chain recurring subscription is, is a viable example. And that's one of the areas that we're focusing on. Uh, next uh, in the in the publishing uh, kind of media world. Um, we're also looking closely at the SaaS models because 
think of this, right? Um, using a service, uh, a tool for which you pay monthly. Well, that could be an NFT that you have in your wallet. And as long as you have it, you can use. If you don't have the wallet anymore, you can't use the, the service anymore. Um, for me, that's another kind of really valuable uh, use case that we want to prove. Similarly, we've been used by a bunch of DAOs. Uh, I do think that's a very valuable model as well, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Wonderful. I, I wish uh, we had another hour because if we did, we would talk about your upcoming DAO but, and how you're building that out. But I think that's probably a conversation for another time. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I'm happy to come back at some point as well. That would be great. I have one more question for you. Just as a founder, you were a founder of a Web2 company. You exited. Now you're a founder of a Web3 company. What are the main differences that you're seeing between being a founder between these different webs? It's, it's hard, no matter what, it's hard. Like that's maybe uh, the, the shared aspect. The difference is, is, I think with Web3, we tend to build with community a lot more and we should, and I think we try to do that on Lock and I think most of the ecosystem. You know, in a Web2 world, um, a lot of companies, okay, they use what we call the client-server model. Like you build something and then people are going to use this. And this is kind of a very traditional way of doing business. I think one of the really unique aspects of Web3 is that it blurs the line between your customers your even your shareholders i mean you know governance tokens uh, end up to be mechanism for people to kind of govern uh, what the protocol does and what the company uh, will do in, in some way so you have a lot more community that is involved in many more phases of the business and so maybe that's the biggest difference so in the past when i think you could you know um, build um, and then ship and then hope that people will do something here, we tend to build a lot more with the community, for the community, with them involved, with them doing promotion, with them doing testing, with them doing design, because they are technically uh, vested uh, from, a, from, an, from an ownership perspective in this. So going back to the point that you're making, like read-write on the Web2 aspect of things, read-write-own, it's, you know, it's not just own. It's like it's own in the sense of uh, you own this. It's like it's, it's your job to do that as well. It's like you're part of the community. Um, and, and you're not just a, a user that's kind of sharecropping uh, on the platform uh, in, that, in that area. Yeah. Julian, this was so fascinating. And I have to say, I, I've been a big fan of yours for a while. And getting to know Patrick and learning more about Unlock has been really a great experience. And I just want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join this podcast. Absolutely. Really, thank you. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you for the kind words. Let me know if we can help in any way. I'd love to at some point create an off-the-chain membership. I think that'd be, that'd be pretty cool. I would absolutely love that. And I'll continue to keep in touch with your team to make it happen. And this is wonderful and keep building. And I'm really rooting for you and your team. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye. That's it, everyone. Hope you enjoyed. Hit that subscribe button and we'll see you next time.